Section 13 of Self-Help. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adrian Stevens. Self-Help with Illustrations of Conduct and Perseverance by Samuel Smiles. Chapter 5. Helps and Opportunities. Scientific Pursuits. Part 3. The life of Sir William Herschel affords another remarkable illustration of the force of perseverance in another branch of science. His father was a poor German musician who brought up his four sons to the same calling. William came over to England to seek his fortune, and he joined the band of the Durham militia in which he played the oboe. The regiment was lying at Doncaster, where Dr. Miller first became acquainted with Herschel, having heard him perform a solo on the violin in a surprising manner. The doctor entered into conversation with the youth, and was so pleased with him that he urged him to leave the militia and take up his residence at his house for a time. Herschel did so, and while at Doncaster was principally occupied in violin playing at concerts, availing himself of the advantages of Dr. Miller's library to study in his leisure hours. A new organ having been built for the parish church of Halifax, an organist was advertised for, on which Herschel applied for the office and was selected. Leading the wandering life of an artist, he was next attracted to Bath, where he played in the Pump Room Band, and also officiated as organist in the Octagon Chapel. Some recent discoveries in astronomy having arrested his mind, and awakened in him a powerful spirit of curiosity, he sought and obtained from a friend the loan of a two-foot Gregorian telescope. So fascinated was the poor musician by the science, that he even thought of purchasing a telescope, but the price asked by the London optician was so alarming that he determined to make one. Those who know what a reflecting telescope is, and the skill which is required to prepare the concave metallic speculum, which forms the most important part of the apparatus, will be able to form some idea of the difficulty of this undertaking. Nevertheless, Herschel succeeded, after long and painful labour, in completing a five-foot reflector, with which he had the gratification of observing the ring and satellites of Saturn. Not satisfied with his triumph, he proceeded to make other instruments in succession, of seven, ten, and even twenty feet. In constructing the seven-foot reflector, he finished no fewer than two hundred specula before he produced one that would bear any power that was applied to it a striking instance of the persevering laboriousness of the man. While gauging the heavens with his instruments, he continued patiently to earn his bread by piping to the fashionable frequenters of the pump-room. So eager was he in his astronomical observations that he would steal away from the room during an interval of the performance, give a little turn at his telescope, and contentedly return to his oboe. Thus working away, Herschel discovered the Georgium Sidus, the orbit and rate of motion of which he carefully calculated, 
and sent the result to the Royal Society, when the humble oboe player found himself at once elevated from obscurity to fame. He was shortly after appointed Astronomer Royal, and by the kindness of George III was placed in a position of honourable competency for life. He bore his honours with the same meekness and humility which had distinguished him in the days of his obscurity. So gentle and patient, and withal so distinguished and successful a follower of science under difficulties, perhaps cannot be found in the entire history of biography. The career of William Smith, the father of English geology, though perhaps less known, is not less interesting and instructive as an example of patient and laborious effort and the diligent cultivation of opportunities. He was born in 1769, the son of a yeoman farmer at Churchill in Oxfordshire. His father dying when he was but a child, he received a very sparing education at the village school, and even that was to a considerable extent interfered with by his wandering and somewhat idle habits as a boy. His mother, having married a second time, he was taken in charge by an uncle, also a farmer, by whom he was brought up. Though the uncle was by no means pleased with the boy's love of wandering about, collecting pound stones, pundits, and other stony curiosities which lay scattered about the adjoining land, he yet enabled him to purchase a few of the necessary books wherewith to instruct himself in the rudiments of geometry and surveying, for the boy was already destined for the business of a land surveyor. One of his marked characteristics, even as a youth, was the accuracy and keenness of his observation, and what he clearly saw he never forgot. He began to draw, attempted to colour, and practised the arts of mensuration and surveying, all without regular instruction, and by his efforts in self-culture. He shortly became so proficient that he was taken on as assistant to a local surveyor of ability in the neighbourhood. In carrying on his business, he was constantly under the necessity of traversing Oxfordshire and the adjoining counties. One of the first things he seriously pondered over was the position of the various soils and strata that came under his notice on the lands which he surveyed or travelled over, more especially the position of the red earth in regard to the lias and superincumbent rocks. The surveys of numerous collieries, which he was called upon to make, gave him further experience, and already, when only twenty-three years of age, he contemplated making a model of the strata of the earth. While engaged in levelling for a proposed canal in Gloucestershire, the idea of a general law occurred to him relating to the strata of that district. He conceived that the strata lying above the coal were not laid horizontally, but inclined, and in one direction towards the east, resembling, on a large scale, the ordinary appearance of superposed slices of bread and butter. The correctness of this theory he shortly after confirmed by observations of the strata in two parallel valleys, the Red Ground, Lias, and Freestone, or Ulite, being found to come down in an eastern direction, 
and to sink below the level, yielding place to the next in succession. He was shortly enabled to verify the truth of his views on a larger scale, having been appointed to examine personally into the management of canals in England and Wales. During his journeys, which extended from Bath to Newcastle-on-Tyne, returning by Shropshire and Wales, his keen eyes were never idle for a moment. He rapidly noted the aspect and structure of the country through which he passed with his companions, treasuring up his observations for future use. His geologic vision was so acute that though the road along which he passed from York to Newcastle in the post-chase was from five to fifteen miles distant from the hills of Chalk and Oolite on the east, he was satisfied as to their nature, by their contours and relative position, and their ranges on the surface, in relation to the leas and red ground occasionally seen on the road. The general results of his observation seem to have been these. He noted that the rocky masses of country in the western parts of England generally inclined to the east and southeast, that the red sandstones and marls above the coal measures passed beneath the leas, clay and limestone, that these again passed beneath the sands, yellow limestones and clays, forming the tableland of the Cotswold Hills while these in turn passed beneath the great chalk deposits occupying the eastern parts of England. He further observed that each layer of clay, sand and limestone held its own peculiar classes of fossils, and pondering much on these things, he at length came to the then unheard-of conclusion that each distinct deposit of marine animals in these several strata indicated a distinct sea-bottom, and that each layer of clay, sand, chalk and stone marked a distinct epoch of time in the history of the earth. This idea took firm possession of his mind, and he could talk and think of nothing else. At canal boards, at sheep shearings, at county meetings, and at agricultural associations, Strata Smith, as he came to be called, was always running over with the subject that possessed him. He had indeed made a great discovery, though he was as yet a man utterly unknown in the scientific world. He proceeded to project a map of the stratification of England, but was for some time deterred from proceeding with it, being fully occupied in carrying out the works of the Somersetshire Coal Canal, which engaged him for a period of about six years. He continued, nevertheless, to be unremitting in his observation of facts, and he became so expert in apprehending the internal structure of a district and detecting the lie of the strata from its external configuration that he was often consulted respecting the drainage of extensive tracts of land in which, guided by his geological knowledge, he proved remarkably successful and acquired an extensive reputation. One day, when looking over the cabinet collection of fossils belonging to the Reverend Samuel Richardson at Bath, Smith astonished his friend by suddenly disarranging his classification and rearranging the fossils in their stratigraphical order, saying, These came from the blue layers, these from the overlying sand and freestone, these from the fuller's earth, 
and these from the bath building stone a new light flashed upon mr richardson's mind and he shortly became a convert to and believer in william smith's doctrine the geologists of the day were not however so easily convinced and it was scarcely to be tolerated that an unknown land surveyor should pretend to teach them the science of geology but william smith had an eye and mind to penetrate deep beneath the skin of the earth he saw its very fibre and skeleton and as it were divined its organization his knowledge of the strata in the neighbourhood of bath was so accurate that one evening when dining at the house of the rev joseph townsend he dictated to mr richardson the different strata according to their order of succession in descending order twenty-three in number commencing with the chalk and descending in continuous series down to the coal below which the strata were not then sufficiently determined to this was added a list of the more remarkable fossils which had been gathered in the several layers of rock this was printed and extensively circulated in eighteen o one he next determined to trace out the strata through districts as remote from bath as his means would enable him to reach for years he journeyed to and fro sometimes on foot sometimes on horseback riding on the tops of stage-coaches often making up by night travelling the time he had lost by day so as not to fail in his ordinary business engagements when he was professionally called away to any distance from home as for instance when travelling from bath to holcombe in norfolk to direct the irrigation and drainage of mr coke's land in that county he rode on horseback making frequent detours from the road to note the geological features of the country which he traversed for several years he was thus engaged in his journeys to distant quarters in england and ireland to the extent of upwards of ten thousand miles yearly and it was amidst this incessant and laborious travelling that he contrived to commit to paper his fast-growing generalizations on what he rightly regarded as a new science no observation howsoever trivial it might appear was neglected and no opportunity of collecting fresh facts was overlooked whenever he could he possessed himself of records of borings natural and artificial sections drew them to a constant scale of eight yards to the inch and coloured them up of his keenness of observation take the following illustration when making one of his geological excursions about the country near woburn as he was drawing near to the foot of the dunstable chalk hills he observed to his companion if there be any broken ground about the foot of these hills we may find shark's teeth and they had not proceeded far before they picked up six from the white bank of a new fence ditch as he afterwards said of himself the habit of observation crept on me gained a settlement in my mind became a constant associate of my life and started up in activity at the first thought of a journey so that i generally went off well prepared with maps and sometimes with contemplations on its objects or on those on the road reduced to writing before it commenced my mind was therefore like the canvas of a painter 
well prepared for the first and best impressions notwithstanding his courageous and indefatigable industry many circumstances contributed to prevent the promised publication of william smith's map of the strata of england and wales and it was not until eighteen fourteen that he was enabled by the assistance of some friends to give to the world the fruits of his twenty years incessant labour to prosecute his inquiries and collect the extensive series of facts and observations requisite for his purpose he had to expend the whole of the profits of his professional labours during that period and he even sold off his small property to provide the means of visiting remoter parts of the island meanwhile he had entered on a quarrying speculation near bath which proved unsuccessful and he was under the necessity of selling his geological collection which was purchased by the british museum his furniture and library reserving only his papers maps and sections which were useless save to himself he bore his losses and misfortunes with exemplary fortitude and amidst all he went on working with cheerful courage and untiring patience he died at northampton in august eighteen thirty nine while on his way to attend the meeting of the british association at birmingham it is difficult to speak in terms of too high praise of the first geological map of england which we owe to the industry of this courageous man of science an accomplished writer says of it it was a work so masterly in conception and so correct in general outline that in principle it served as a basis not only for the production of later maps of the british islands but for geological maps of all other parts of the world wherever they have been undertaken in the apartments of the geological society smith's map may yet be seen a great historical document old and worn calling for the renewal of its faded tints let any one conversant with the subject compare it with later works on a similar scale and he will find that in all essential features it will not suffer by the comparison the intricate anatomy of the silurian rocks of wales and the north of england by murchison and sedgwick being the chief additions made to his great generalizations the genius of the oxfordshire surveyor did not fail to be duly recognized and honored by men of science during his lifetime in eighteen thirty one the geological society of london awarded to him the wollaston medal in consideration of his being a great original discoverer in english geology and especially for his being the first in this country to discover and to teach the identification of strata and to determine their succession by means of their embedded fossils william smith in his simple earnest way gained for himself a name as lasting as the science he loved so well to use the words of the writer above quoted till the manner as well as the fact of the first appearance of successive forms of life shall be solved it is not easy to surmise how any discovery can be made in geology equal in value to that which we owe to the genius of william smith hugh miller was a man of like observant faculties who studied literature as well as science with zeal and success 
the book in which he has told the story of his life my scholes and schoolmasters is extremely interesting and calculated to be eminently useful it is the history of the formation of a truly noble character in the humblest condition of life and inculcates most powerfully the lessons of self-help self-respect and self-dependence while hugh was but a child his father who was a sailor was drowned at sea and he was brought up by his widowed mother he had a school training after a sort but his best teachers were the boys with whom he played the men amongst whom he worked the friends and relatives with whom he lived he read much and miscellaneously and picked up odd sorts of knowledge from many quarters from workmen carpenters fishermen and sailors and above all from the old boulders strewed along the shores of the cromarty frith with a big hammer which had belonged to his great-grandfather the old buccaneer the boy went about chipping the stones and accumulating specimens of mica porphyry garnet and such like sometimes he had a day in the woods and there too the boy's attention was excited by the peculiar geological curiosities which came in his way while searching among the rocks on the beach he was sometimes asked in irony by the farm servants who came to load their carts with seaweed whether he was getting siller in the stains but was so unlucky as never to be able to answer in the affirmative when of a suitable age he was apprenticed to the trade of his choice that of a working stonemason and he began his labouring career in a quarry looking out upon the cromarty frith this quarry proved one of the best schools the remarkable geological formations which it displayed awakened his curiosity the bar of deep red stone beneath and the bar of pale red clay above were noted by the young quarryman who even in such unpromising subjects found matter for observation and reflection where other men saw nothing he detected analogies differences and peculiarities which set him a-thinking he simply kept his eyes and his mind open was sober diligent and persevering and this was the secret of his intellectual growth his curiosity was excited and kept alive by the curious organic remains principally of old and extinct species of fishes ferns and ammonites which were revealed along the coast by the washings of the waves or were exposed by the stroke of his mason's hammer he never lost sight of the subject but went on accumulating observations and comparing formations until at length many years afterwards when no longer a working mason he gave to the world his highly interesting work on the old red sandstone which at once established his reputation as a scientific geologist but this work was the fruit of long years of patient observation and research as he modestly states in his autobiography the only merit to which i lay claim in the case is that of patient research a merit in which whoever wills may rival or surpass me and this humble faculty of patience when rightly developed may lead to more extraordinary developments of idea than even genius itself the late john brown 
the eminent English geologist, was, like Miller, a stonemason in his early life, serving an apprenticeship to the trade at Colchester, and afterwards working as a journeyman mason at Norwich. He began business as a builder on his own account at Colchester, where, by frugality and industry, he secured a competency. It was while working at his trade that his attention was first drawn to the study of fossils and shells, and he proceeded to make a collection of them, which afterwards grew into one of the finest in England. His researches along the coasts of Essex, Kent and Sussex brought to light some magnificent remains of the elephant and rhinoceros, the most valuable of which were presented by him to the British Museum. During the last few years of his life, he devoted considerable attention to the study of the Formanifera in chalk, respecting which he made several interesting discoveries. His life was useful, happy, and honoured. He died at Stanway in Essex in November 1859, at the ripe age of eighty years. Not long ago, Sir Roderick Murchison discovered at Thurso, in the far north of Scotland, a profound geologist in the person of a baker there named Robert Dick. When Sir Roderick called upon him at the bakehouse in which he baked and earned his bread, Robert Dick delineated to him, by means of flour upon the board, the geographical features and the geological phenomena of his native county, pointing out the imperfections in the existing maps, which he had ascertained by travelling over the country in his leisure hours. On further inquiry, Sir Roderick ascertained that the humble individual before him was not only a capital baker and geologist, but a first-rate botanist. I found, said the President of the Geographical Society, to my great humiliation that the baker knew infinitely more of botanical science, aye, ten times more than I did, and that there was only some twenty or thirty specimens of flowers which he had not collected. Some he had obtained as presents, some he had purchased, but the greater portion had been accumulated by his industry in his native county of Caithness, and the specimens were all arranged in the most beautiful order, with their scientific names affixed. Sir Roderick Murchison himself is an illustrious follower of these and kindred branches of science. A writer in the Quarterly Review cites him as a singular instance of a man who, having passed the early part of his life as a soldier, never having had the advantage or disadvantage, as the case might have been, of a scientific training, instead of remaining a fox-hunting country gentleman, has succeeded by his own native vigour and sagacity, untiring industry and zeal, in making for himself a scientific reputation that is as wide as it is likely to be lasting. He took first of all an unexplored and difficult district at home, and by the labour of many years examined its rock formations, classed them in natural groups, assigned to each its characteristic assemblage of fossils, and was the first to decipher two great chapters in the world's geological history, which must always henceforth carry his name on their title page. Not only so, but he applied the knowledge thus acquired to the dissection of large districts, both at home and abroad, 
so as to become the geological discoverer of great countries which had formerly been terrae incogniti but sir roderick murchison is not merely a geologist his indefatigable labours in many branches of knowledge have contributed to render him among the most accomplished and complete of scientific men End of section 13